Welcome to Tune In YRDSB, inspiring learning through storytelling. Hello, listeners. Uh, my name is Kyle Guleb. I am a special education consultant here at YRDSB. Today, I'm joined by... Hi, everyone. My name is Cindy Thomas, and I am the coordinator of Student Services. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Steve Hopkins. I am the principal of Student Services. And uh, just, just as a note, you've probably heard it, within those three titles, we used both special education and student services. So our department as a whole is student services, but we are responsible for delivering our special education services as well as some other services. So that's why we have an all-encompassing title of student services. So we're hoping that's not too confusing, um, but, but hopefully that helps clarify a little bit. Thanks, Steve. Uh, we are so excited to be here today to engage in an important conversation about how our staff support students with exceptionalities. We know that it can feel overwhelmed for families when their child is identified. We believe that every child can be successful given access to the right supports and resources. Today, we wanna to help you understand what that process looks like, answer some of the questions we know families have, and share some of the amazing supports that are in place to help ensure students are supported, affirmed, and successful. All right, let's jump in. I'm gonna turn it over to Cindy here. Cindy, can you, uh, just give us a little bit of an introduction to kind of special education here at YDSB. Thanks, Kyle. Um, well, first and foremost, I really do want to state that we wholeheartedly believe that every student can be successful with the right supports in place. Um, so when we talk about educational programs, you're going to hear us use words like individualized. Um, and really, when we're talking about that, we're specifically, you know, saying how education can be designed to meet the needs of the, of the child um, to make sure that it addresses their strengths, their interests, their needs, and that their environment, their learning is identity affirming. We truly value student voice. And of course, we always wanna encourage students to be part of the process to share with us how do they learn best? When do they feel most successful? When do they feel the most confident? Um, and they definitely need to be part of their own journey in education. So we. We want to leverage their voice and we want them to be able to share. And then with that being said, we also support positive partnerships with our families. We want to ensure that their voices are heard um, and that communication is ongoing. It's open. It's honest. There are no surprises um, because we always want to ensure that the well-being and academic achievement of their child um, is what is most important. So I, I think actually, just as you were talking about that, Cindy, I was thinking in, in the back of my head that uh, I'm sure there's families out there that, that feel that this process is happening to them, right? And, and that's not what we're trying to do. Um, that's absolutely not our goal. So I would encourage anyone that is out there that feels like this is a process that's happening to them, that they're not engaged or not in control of it, that, that they should reach out to their school. They should reach out to their, their principal or vice principal um, and, and engage in that conversation, put their hand up and say, I, I'm confused or, or I don't feel like I'm in control of the decisions that are being made around my child. Um, and so then, you know, then we can engage in that conversation and make sure that they are involved and that they do have their voice honored and heard as well. Absolutely. And we know that parents might come across like me have several questions, right? In special education, we have a lot of acronyms that we use. Um, and too many. Some, too many. <laughs> acronyms? IPRC? IEP? R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. Well, I think we all know what respect is, but you're right. There are a lot of acronyms. And during this episode, we're going to talk about some of those and some words that uh, you may have heard, but are not that familiar with. And we're going to kind of break them down to help you understand them a little better. So a word you may hear sometimes is identification. And 
what's an identification? How does that work? And we're going to spend a little bit of time right now just uh, delving a little deeper into, you know, what an identification is and how does that work exactly? And All right. So let's just jump into it. We know that all students are unique and we really want to get as educators. We always want to get to know our learners and get to know their strengths, needs, what makes them unique in their own ways. Some of these students may have specific learning needs and need personalized instructions or resources or tools. So you might think about a student who might have a physical disability and needs to navigate around the classroom. What would they need? Um, you might think about a student who, in order to access the curriculum, in order to understand what they're being taught, um, in order to communicate their own learning, they also may need a laptop. There's the formal identification through an IPRC process, which is which is laid out in legislation and regulation from the ministry. And there's all kinds of criteria and who who you know makes up the the quorum of the committee that makes that decision. And and it's very technical and and um, transactional, right? Whereas what we're really concerned about in the end, and the whole reason that that process is in place, is precisely as you were saying, Cindy, is is to to get to the the strengths and and then that what supports are needed for individual students and and when those strengths and needed supports you know f fit a certain profile then they sort of meet the criteria for an identification and then we can follow through that process but again that's all kind of paperwork stuff right as opposed to the day-to-day -day instruction right the bottom line is a student shows up every morning at the bell and they're in a classroom and they need to be taught and they need to be assessed in a way that's that's equitable and and, and accurate for them. Um, and then that assessment on that day informs what happens later that day and the next day. Um, and it's that cycle that, that should be happening all the time. And then again, when there's certain criteria that are met or when a certain profile is, is present, then we can look at doing the formal identification through an IPRC. And that's the Identification Placement and Review Committee. Um, so, and, and that's that, that formalized process that then there's paperwork behind it, there's agreements, and there's, there's tracking of, of those pieces as well. Exactly. So um, just kind of going back to what I said earlier about, you know, partnership with parents and really having that open, honest, ongoing communication. I think it's important to have those conversations with parents so that they know what the process looks like in the educational system, right? So having them become familiar with a letter of invitation that will be sent home. And that letter of invitation clearly outlines what the identification is going to be, what the placement um, of their child is going to be. Are they going to be in the regular, regular classroom? Are they going to be in a smaller special education setting? Um, and what type of supports are they going to receive? All those conversations should be happening before the actual formal IPRC meeting, right? So we have an opportunity to answer any questions, answer any concerns, um, provide more information to the parents so that they know exactly what their child's educational day looks like. 100%. And, and I think it's also important to point out that, um, that while the overall requirement for these processes does come straight from the ministry, how they actually function changes board to board. So in some boards, that conversation doesn't happen at all until the meeting of the, of the, the committee itself. Whereas in, in York Region, in the York, the York Region District School Board, we actually have, that's a, that's a fulsome collaborative conversation with the families long before the IPRC occurs. So that, that we are ideally already in agreement 
as how we can best ne- meet the needs of the child. Then the, the committee meets and there's, there's, there's the formal recognition that this is how we're going to move forward. Absolutely. So I'm just thinking we're talking about this because we're so familiar with the process, right? right? But a parent might be wondering, well, how do we even get there? Like, how do we even get to an IPRC, right? So what type of documentation or paperwork might be needed? Which is a great, um, a great question. You're absolutely right. Like we, we, we've launched all the way to the point of an IPRC, which is actually a very small fraction of students in our board. Um, so really, the first step in, in that sort of journey towards an IPRC or an, a formal identification um, is the recognition that, that there's some struggle, that, that, that a, a student is not accessing curriculum or able to demonstrate that they're accessing curriculum um, in a way that, that, that we're able to, to facilitate just in, in the classroom or, or with the, the, the typical um, interventions or the, or the typical accommodations. And then there's further investigation that happens. And so they, they, there may be an in-school team meeting, or you could hear it referred to as an ISTM, um, where the classroom teacher and maybe a special education resource teacher, but absolutely an administrator and, and ideally the family as well are getting together and having that conversation. Well, what do they observe? What are those strengths? What are the things that we see happening you know, and where is where is that child excelling? Um, and then how can we leverage that and, and bring it across to those spaces where we're not seeing the same kind of progress or, or a demonstration of skill and knowledge? And then if, again, it, as we go through that cycle of, of iteration and trying to improve each time and be more precise and more personalized, there might come a point where, where there's a, a conversation about doing a formalized assessment. And, and again, depending on what it is that's seen as, as, as um, potentially causing that struggle of accessing curriculum, uh, then it would, it would change, you know, who is doing that assessment. And, and those assessments, I'm not talking about the classroom assessments of, of, you know, how well did you understand the lesson that we just taught. We're actually talking about a, a more formal, a cognitive assessment or a speech and language assessment or a motor coordination or something like that, but being done by a regulated health professional. Um, and that can be done if that process is done internally within the school and within the board, then we can do that with one of our practitioners. Um, but families are always welcome to access external practitioners as well. And if they have an assessment that's been done, they can share that with the school. And then our practitioners can help us interpret that um, because every profession has their own language, right? In the same way that we've talked about some of those acronyms within education, uh, we have our language but the occupational therapists and physical therapists have their language as well. And so we may think that we, I as a teacher, right, as a principal and a teacher may think I understand what that OT is saying, but chances are I don't really know it the same way. So that's why we have our own to help us interpret that and see how that would play out in the classroom. So they could come in with an assessment already done um, or already completed by a medical professional. Um, But then, you know, there's often times where students, as Steve's, like you were mentioning, that students um, encounter these struggles. As you know, the curriculum gets more difficult over the years, there's more content that's being learned, uh, we may start to see some of those struggles and that's where we would come together at an in-school team meeting because it is a collaborative problem-solving avenue to talk about you know, how can we best meet the student needs. So it's important to kind of see that you know, some students may already have an assessment before they even come to school or from an external professional. Um, and other times we may, you know, as the school system, we may suggest that certain supports need to be in place or should, can be in place in order to help the child be more successful in school. 
I think it's also just as as we're talking here. I think it's also really important to distinguish that that when when these assessments are done, and whether it's done by board staff or or external staff, the goal of the assessment is not to have an identification. That's just that's just a, a a happenstance down the road, and and if that's something that the family wants to pursue, the goal of the assessment is to find out where those strengths are and how we can best teach and assess and and work with. Um, a student and so it, it they really are valuable but it's also I think it's also really really important to acknowledge that the whole process the in-school team meetings and the assessments and the interpretation of the assessments it's really really critical that we have family voice and the students voice as early as possible in helping us interpret those pieces because there are um, individual pieces. There's there's aspects of of um, a student and a family's you know history and experience and 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 all of those other pieces uh, that can greatly influence how those reports are interpreted. Because the reports are just language, um, and it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, it's just a very small piece. Um, it can often be a very critical piece, um, but it's just a very small piece of of who it is that we're working with. I've had experiences even in the past working in a school where um, a parent had concerns and had stigmas around special education because of their own experiences growing up in school. So I think it's really important to listen to them and to really share what special education looks like in our system. And, and ultimately, we're there for the child, right? The child is the most important person in this picture, and we want to make sure that not only are they being able to um, achieve academically, to be successful, but that their well-being is also being taken care of, right? That they feel good about themselves, that they feel like they're in a space where they're comfortable, they feel safe, they feel like they can contribute, they have a voice. So I think that's just, at the end of the day, it really is about the child. But it's important to take into consideration everyone's voice, family voice, their own experiences, um, and really just give them an idea that an identification is not a bad thing, right? Like we really do wanna share that this is something, although it's a formal process, it's in place so that we can get put in the support that the student may need. And that have, we have many students that, that actually see that identification as, as part of their identity. Um, and in the same way that, that you know, it, we all have our strengths and we all have these areas that we, that we don't believe we're as good at. Um, and, and we can wear them both with, with pride um, because that's who we are and that's, that's w- what we bring to a conversation, to the table, to an experience, to, to whatever it might be. But the better we understand ourselves, um, then the more we're able to, to take advantage of any opportunities that come along, but also the more we're able to self-advocate so that that opportunities aren't withheld. And that really is also, um, you know, a huge part of what we're trying to do is ensure that no opportunities are withheld and that that those, I mean, we talk as a system, we talk often about pathways um, and pathways through our system, but also our exit pathways. So what's what are the post-secondary pathways? And all of those should be open to every student. Um, and then it's what they choose and, and where they want to go um, that determines their path in getting there. So when we have, the, we have that formal process of an IPRC, and ideally when it works correctly in our system, then we're all in agreement before that meeting actually happens. And so it's a very, very short meeting. 
Um, you know, having said that, we are a, an organization of, of people um, and, we're, and we're dealing with families who are all people as well. And, and there can be misunderstandings and there can be um, a change of, of mind or whatever it might be. And so at the end of that meeting, if a family is not in agreement with the decision of the IPRC, then they can they can voice that. Um, and what we would do is, is immediately try to regroup and have that conversation and find out and get to common ground on, on how we want to move forward. And there's legal parameters around that in terms of 15 days notice and 30 days notice and, and those types of things. But I don't know that we need to get into that right now. But the bottom line is that as soon as um, a family knows that they don't like the direction of an IPRC, then they should voice it. Um, because then it's, the, it's the, the school and the board's responsibility to hear that disconnect. Uh, and, and then work towards a common ground. I mean, if, if we're still not in a place, there is, again, there's another process. So at the end of the, or within the 30 days, if we haven't been able to find that common ground, then there is an appeals process as well. And that's all part of our, our family guide for IPRCs or our parents guide for IPRCs. Um, and it's also available on, uh, well, it's available on the board website, but information around that is also available through the ministry as well. Um, and so parents have absolutely every right to access those, uh, those avenues if, if they wish. Fortunately, um, as a board, we have exceedingly rare situations where we've gotten to that point because we are, our goal is to be as collaborative as possible and, and reach that common ground. Some of your families listening may have some more questions about, you know, what are the specific identifications and placements offered here in York Region District School Board? Well, and in fact, like, I don't think we actually even need to be that linear, okay. right? Like, I mean, we can we can really just start, start talking yeah. about the fact that, like, within that IPRC process, yeah. right, there's there's really two pieces that are determined. I think, Cindy, you'd already sort of talked about the fact that there's, there's an identification and then there's a placement. Yeah. Um, and that identification, right, is, is sort of a two-step piece. Like first, it's whether or not the student is exceptional, whether they sort of meet the criteria of being ex exceptional, and then which exceptionality um, applies, right? And it can be more than one. Well, there's there's the categories. Categories, yeah. Categories sorry, yeah. The, there's the, thank you. Yeah, the, the word escaped me. The categories of exceptionality, um, and those are set out by the ministry, right? And there's a general description for each of those as well that, that's set out by the ministry, and then what those specifically look like are determined by each board. So again. Um, where the IPRC process varies from board to board, so does the, the specific criteria for exceptionalities has some variation from board to board. And so a student that might meet the criteria for a learning disability exceptionality within one board, the family moves, they might not actually meet the criteria in the next board, right? Now, by and large, most boards will, you know, honor uh, the, the decisions of other boards as well. But there still has to be a new IPRC when you travel into a new board because they have to make that determination for themselves. But also within that, um, you know, the, those categories, essentially labels, which is, you know, one of the things that, that we often are trying to, to fight against is the labeling and, and the pigeonholing of individuals. We don't have control over, over those titles. Um, and so we have to work within those. But we try very, very hard to ensure that the name of that category or that exceptionality is just a placeholder and a way to report back to the ministry. In the end, that's not really the critical part. The critical part is the strengths and the needs that are determined 
by the IPRC, and that comes through those assessments and the conversations with the the, the families and the conversations with the the school-based staff that build those strengths and those those needs that really highlight how we can best teach the student. That's really the the critical part. Those categories that you were mentioning from the Ministry of Education, they have kind of like an umbrella topics, so they fall under behavioral, and that can include um, things like anxiety, or it could include attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So those would kind of fall under behavioral, but the other categories include communication, um, such as learning disability would fall under communication. There is intellectual, so a student who might be diagnosed with a mild intellectual disability or a developmental disability might fall under intellectual or even giftedness. Um, then there's physical and multiple exceptionalities. So multiple exceptionality would mean that a student has been identified under more than one category. And we actually as a board don't use the multiple exceptionalities category because we can, within our system, we can carry up to five different identifications. Now, after the first you know, most prominent or impactful identification and maybe a second, I'm not sure you know, how much added information is gleaned from having a third, fourth, or fifth, but we, we prefer to just actually delineate if there's more than one, let's just say which ones those are, and then that way we can hopefully be a little more informed as opposed to just having a, a multiple exceptionalities as a list. The other one that I've always found interesting is the behavior one, and, yeah. uh, and, it's, and, and I totally understand. I can uh, just imagine the struggle that, that, that people have um, when we're talking about identifying their child or the student themselves being identified you know, as having the exceptionality of behavior. And again, unfortunately, that, that title is one that comes from the ministry. But what I do find also interesting about it is that, uh, that it's also very specific, right? In that the, the reason that the student is struggling to access curriculum, so with that behavior, cannot be due to any of the other exceptionalities. So if the student is struggling to access curriculum because of um, their language impairment or because of a, uh, a physical disability, whatever it might be. And that's what's, what's causing the struggle and the frustration and, the, and the, the anxiety. Then they actually meet the criteria for those exceptionalities and not behavior. Um, and so it's, it's a tough one to, to try to pull apart as a, as a, as a principal who's, who sat on, you know, many a, a committee. Um, it's sometimes really tough to kind of separate which part is due to this and which part is due to that. Um, but in the end, if a student meets the criteria for one exceptionality, that serves the purpose. All of the, the, the rights and responsibilities and resources that come with that are available to them. It doesn't have to be this one or that one. Yeah. Um, because we're looking at the whole child, right? right? We're not just saying, oh, you now have this identification and we're only going to give you supports in place for that identification, right? right? It's, it's about the whole child. Absolutely. Another platform where it becomes very collaborative is the development of the IEP, which stands for Individual Education Plan. So that is something that comes out of um, following a IPRC following that formal identification process, um, an IEP is developed. And basically an IEP, Individual Education Plan, is a plan that outlines what the strengths and needs and interests of that child, right? So it really is a plan. We look at accommodations that can be put in place. I want to pause on that. I think, Steve, earlier you were mentioning about, you know, reports, these assessment reports we get from uh, regulated healthcare professionals. And 
a lot of the information, there may be a referral or a recommendation for an IPRC for that student, but some of the, the follow-up of the report is they give us, you know, some things or some strategies, some tips, which are referred to as accommodations that teachers can use every day in the classroom to help that student be successful. And so I think one of the the value of having an assessment done on your child and, and having a report is to find out what things they need uh, to be successful and to, to achieve high levels, exceed, even exceed levels of achievement or expectations. And those accommodations get worked into the IEP and often they come from those reports from our regulated healthcare professionals. Oh, that's a great point, Kyle, um, especially with, uh, with, with the, the number. Like, one of the advantages of having regulated health professionals writing these reports is that they're coming out with a very different lens and, and a, a much deeper understanding in, in a different field of, of you know, child and human development. Um, and so the recommendations that they come, uh, come with are often ones that, that, well, maybe not often, but, but can be ones that we haven't necessarily thought of. I think one of the things to, that we have to be uh, mindful of as well, though, is that, that that we can't always take the recommendations word for word directly out of, or here's a list of recommendations from a psychologist, and we're just going to copy and paste them. We have to we have to work with those through the lens of a, of, of a school and a classroom, um, and so often they're things that we can absolutely try, and if they work, then we then we want to record that as something that works and is very supportive. Um, they can be things that we try and we say, you know what, again, with parent and student feedback, we say, no, that actually wasn't all that helpful or it's not really all that necessary. And so then we don't record that in the IEP. Um, and then some of them, you know, unfortunately aren't feasible within a classroom environment, um, but might be absolutely feasible in a different environment. But they're still going to be included because those reports are not written for a school. They're written for a student or for a child or for, for an individual. But working through that, again, is also a collaborative process with the family and with the student. And, and as early as possible in their, in their schooling career, the student, because they're the ones that are in the classroom saying, yeah, that's not working for me. Or, yeah, you know what? That was awesome. I felt so good when, I, when that was provided for me. Um, that that's really, really key. If a student feels that way, you know, let's say we're in the middle of November, December, and something happens in class, and I'm like, wow, that really helped me but the IEP was maybe prepared earlier in the year. Are the teachers able to add that in? Can they, can they make adjustments to it? Or is it a fixed document? I'm just a little, a little curious about that. Absolutely. So the IEP is definitely a working document, which means that it can be updated at any time. Um, and anytime it is updated, we want to make sure that we are sharing that back with parents, sharing that back with the student, so that they can see exactly what um, the goals in education are and you know, what is going to be used to help that student learn. So yeah, it's a working document. It can always be changed. It can always be updated. It's flexible, but we want to make sure that it really does outline the student's needs. Absolutely. And with the student's voice as, as to what's what's working, I think, Kyle, that's a great example of a, of a situation where, yeah, something happens. And, and sometimes, you know, I mean, like everything in life, sometimes we just trip over these things that are really, really effective. Uh, and, and when the student then says to the teacher, like, yeah, you know what, when, when you gave me that memory aid, right, uh, I, that was it. Like, I took the pressure off and I was able to really show you what I knew. Um, I'm probably not going to say it that way, but uh, but if that's what they're telling the the teacher, then absolutely we can include memory aids into the IEP as an accommodation, and then and then going forward that becomes the standard for that student. 
And then I think the other thing that I that I would also like to kind of highlight with our IEPs is that when we're talking about accommodations, we also want to be mindful that we're not just creating this long laundry list. We want to really be focused on the the accommodations that are critical and that are highly supportive. Um, and then if they're ones that that you know add a little bit of benefit, but not so much, then maybe that doesn't need to be recorded in the IEP. If it's something that, that is generally given to the entire class, then that doesn't necessarily need to be in the IEP, right? Um, so that we can be really focused on, if it's Kyle's IEP, that we're focused on the things that are going to benefit Kyle and not necessarily the things that are going to benefit Cindy. But we can really, really personalize. That's the individualized part of the IEP. Um, and and I, th I think that that can be very helpful as well. Yeah. I think that's really important because when you think about accommodations or just strategies, instructional strategies that help all learners, like I think about putting visuals up or having an agenda so that students know what's coming next, right? Like that's just, to me, that's just, it's good teaching, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be included on a student's individual education plan, um, but it might be something that's used in the classroom because we know that it can benefit all, le all learners. Absolutely. Um, I, I would defer to the student though as well, like even if it's if it's a common practice. So let's say that uh, that I'm a student in, in, in you know, Miss Thomas's class and Miss Thomas is wonderful in setting up, you know, a, a agenda systems and, and there's a review every night and everybody records what they have to do for the next day and for the rest of the week and there's a whole plan on, on what work is getting done at home and what's, you know, all of that is in place. And it's really, really beneficial to me. If I, as a student, say, you know what, that's so helpful, I want it in my IEP, yes. then I think we record it even though Miss Thomas does it every day with her entire class. Because what happens if, if you know, if Miss Thomas gets a wonderful other job opportunity or, or you know, has, has reached that wonderful retirement age or whatever it might be, the person coming in behind Miss Thomas needs to be able to say, you know what, yes, it was a great practice for the whole class, but, you know, most of them are independent. I still need to structure it for Steve. Yes, absolutely. There are definitely students who need those supports and they have to be outlined because that is something that is crucial for them on a day to day basis to be able to learn. So I guess in the end, what we're really saying is that, that that list of accommodations needs to be focused, personalized, and built collaboratively with the, the school, the student, and the family. Yes, you said that perfectly. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Well, you brought me there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break for a moment, and we're going to hear from one of our students who's receiving supports from our, our special education department. Hi, my name is Ethan. I'm a grade nine student from Thornley Secondary School, and... I've had an IEP for a few years. If I had to take a guess, I'd say I got my IEP around grade two or three. Before I got my IEP, I had trouble coping with noisy environments such as classrooms, and I would sometimes misunderstand ordinary conversations. Thanks to these things, I would frequently get upset with friends or teachers. If I was upset, I would have trouble learning and focusing my mind on school. However, when I got my IEP, my environmental accommodations in the IEP allowed me to take breaks and remove myself from those kinds of situations with the supervision of a teacher. After I had calmed down, I would return to class ready to learn. So my IEP helped me get back into a learning mood quickly, and it kept me eager to learn. And the more I took breaks, the more I could reflect. The more I could reflect, the less breaks I needed to take. Now, in high school, I haven't needed a single break since high school started five months ago. However, if something does happen, 
I know I'll have somewhere to go if I need a break. Without my IEP, I wouldn't be able to give learning my all. I would be too busy trying to stay calm. My IEP has really helped me succeed, not just in school, but in life in general. Hi, my name is Olivia, and I go to German Mills Public School, and I'm in grade 8. So when I was younger, I had a lot of trouble with reading and writing, which really separated me from the other students until I got an IEP. Having an IEP has helped me with my schoolwork, and especially with language and math. I get accommodations, and those accommodations are technology and tools. One tool I use is Google Read and Write, and I use it for anything with language, like essays, paragraphs, and just anything to do with writing. In math, I get extra time when I need it, when writing tests and other things my teachers have done to help me with word problems like highlighting keywords and providing pictures to better understand the question. Having an IEP has made me feel more confident in my work than before, and when I was younger, I was worried I'd get my stuff wrong or my work would just be wrong, but now I don't feel that way, and I feel more valued in my classroom. So we also want to let parents know that they definitely have input into the IEP. Um, and before the IEP is developed, usually at the beginning of the year, teachers would send home the IEP consultation form. So that gets sent home to parents and then they're able to contribute some feedback about, you know, their own goals um, for their child, what they hope their child will achieve this year, um, and also to outline some of their child's strengths and needs. And we always want to take that into consideration when developing the IEP as well. Absolutely. And, and again, um, one of the themes that, that, that you'll often hear from me, regardless of the topic, is uh, as early as possible, including the student's voice. Uh, you know, parents or families, they know the child inside and out. There's no doubt about that. And their, their perspective and their thoughts and desires and wishes are absolutely imperative and, and critical. But so is the student. And so the, the second that the student's able to truly express what their dreams and wishes and goals and aspirations and, and what they see as being helpful and, 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 being, and holding them back, the earlier that they can start expressing that, then the, the better and the more informed and personalized that all of this work can be. I think that, you know, in sending home the IEP consultation form, really it's just starting the conversation, that it's uh, a working document that's going to be used throughout the year. And it's to start that conversation, but it doesn't end there after, you know, a parent sends in that form, you know, whether it's an email, a phone call, an in-person meeting. There should be that ongoing communication between our families and our schools to make sure that we are, have a program or a plan that's responsive to that student. Because I know about me, I change day to day sometimes. Uh, and as the year goes on, I'm sure your children and our students and our schools change as well. And we want to make sure that it's a plan. It's a responsive plan that puts uh, that student first. And however they're feeling or however they're doing, we want to make sure that we're giving them what they need day to day so that they can be successful and they can feel good as a learner, that they can show up to school and be like, wow, you know, I, I got this today, I got that. Great. But they're like, they have that confidence that, you know, I'm going to come back tomorrow. I'm going to be successful. And that, that's part of what the IEP is about. It's about, you know, putting those things in place that our, our learners can be confident in themselves and see their own growth. And another thing that I think we haven't touched on, but there are goals in the IEP. There are clear set out goals that uh, in collaboration with families that are developed for the students for the year. And I think that it's important to keep revisiting those goals throughout the year. We do have set times where the IEP is reviewed uh, once per term. But it's important, I think, just to always remember those goals and keep coming back to them and adjusting if, if necessary. Uh, but planning with those, planning with the end in mind and those goals uh, looking ahead every day. So when you're talking about the goals, you're referring to the program pages. 
Yeah. Yes. So yeah, because we have a lot of IEPs that don't have program pages that because it's really about the accommodations and that's that's all or not not all, but that is what the student needs in order to access curriculum and be successful and have all those wonderful feelings you were just describing. But yes, we do have students that that need either modified curriculum. So you know, a student in grade six that that needs to to really really work on some earlier curriculum or or um, or some students with alternative curriculum, right? Where we're looking. Looking at, at something around uh, learning skills or self-regulation or whatever it might be, but learning that still needs to happen and that we as a school board need to support. And so then the program pages are developed for those. And yes, you're 100% right. There's there's sections on that page for you know prior assessment. Where where is the student at in that in that continuum of learning? And then what are the specific goals for this year? And then the breakdown on how we're going to teach it and what's sorry, what are we going to teach? And then how are we going to teach it in terms of strategies and how will we know it's working around assessment strategies as well? Um, and those are really, really important pages. Um, and that's a that's a it's a little bit different level of an IEP in terms of personalization, because we're now saying that the student we need to start looking outside of the Ontario curriculum or earlier in the Ontario curriculum. And I think there's there's something that, that we also need to be very clear on as a system. If the hypothetical Miss Thomas classroom teacher, not hypothetical because she was a classroom teacher and an excellent one at that, but the you know Miss Thomas has her classroom, um, and Steve is in that class and and he's really struggling with that grade six concept. I'll just stick on grade six for the hypothetical, and he's really struggling with that grade six concept. She's not going to just keep teaching him grade six concepts. She's going to find out what's missing, what, where's the misunderstanding or the gap that's, that's preventing Steve from accessing that grade six curriculum. And so she might be teaching a grade four or five piece or, or something even earlier. And once that's in place, then we can go right back to the grade six curriculum. And that's the, the typical process, right? And that's the goal. If, we're, if, if Steve is, is struggling or has things interfering with his ability to access curriculum to the point that we need the program pages, it's still the goal to get back to the, the grade level curriculum. Um, that yeah. this is really just uh, because it's it's more than one little piece that's missing um, that now we're going to to lay out a plan on how what's that path to go from where we're currently at to where we are so no matter what miss thomas is going to teach steve where he's at and build him up but if it's a longer plan then that's when we really need to start looking at program pages and then that also the what it really does is allow us to report differently so the report card will look a little different when there's a program page when there's no program page then steve's in grade six we have to report on the grade six curriculum thanks steve that's a good explanation to look at you know modifications versus accommodations and how with modifications of course we would have program pages right that outline those goals that kyle was talking about and I think that something, you know, we've mentioned goals and sometimes, you know, they're short-term goals, but long-term goals. And uh, another area of the IEP where there are, are goals set out to as well is, is the transition plan. Uh, and the transition plan is an important part of looking at stages, whether that's tra- or transitions from day to day or from one grade to the next or from uh, elementary school, secondary school or, or post or secondary school to post-secondary school. It's important to to be in the moment and be responsive to your child's learning in that moment, but also looking ahead and have goals and make sure that we're putting the things in place for them to achieve those goals in the future. And, and a transition plan, I believe, really helps with that. Perfect. 
<laughs> no, I, 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 that, no, that's that's no, that's that's an excellent summary. Um, that's great. I wouldn't change a word. Um, it's also required by law. There, we can just add that little piece in there. But um, but no, it's. It, I think you're 100 percent right. That's uh, the intentional long-term planning in terms of a transition plan. I think it's also really important to highlight how that aligns with and also reflects our our journey as a board when it comes to all kinds of de-streaming and equity pieces right it's about as as i'd said a while ago it's it's very much about ensuring that all pathways are open to everyone i keep using steve but no matter what steve is experiencing um if his goal is to become a master electrician then that's what we're setting him up for and that's where we're going to build the experiences and the path that allow him to achieve that goal. If Steve doesn't really know what he wants to do, then we need to build a path that keeps as many doors open as possible. Um, and in order to do that, we need to really understand who he is and, and what he's bringing to the school every day and what his family is supporting him in and how they're working with him and, and all of the wonderful things that are, that are going on there as well. And so then that also matches up, right? With if we are truly de-streaming and if we're truly keeping doors open and pathways open and, and, and looking at the whole student and their whole family experience and, and all those other pieces, then we're also, you know, in terms of initiatives within the board, we're also dismantling anti-black racism. We're also looking at indigenous education and equity. We're looking at, we're, we're really in investigating and trying to dismantle ableism and, and gender identity and all of those other pieces because they all play a part in who Steve is as he's going through that transition pathway. So we have um, lots of resources on yrdsb.ca under special education for parents to read. As you mentioned, we have family guides. So we have various family guides about special education. They're also available uh, in different uh, translated languages as well. Yes, up to about, I think, 12 Excellent. translated yeah. languages. Um, so those are available for, for families to read and get more information on um, www.yrdsb.ca. Uh, they would fall under special education. Um, but it's also really important for any parents, if they have any families who have concerns, to talk to teachers, to talk to the special education resource teacher, and to talk to principals at their school. Absolutely. Yep, that's the first stop. It's all uh, the, the classroom teacher and, and the, the school are always the first stop, and, uh, and hopefully, um, any questions or concerns or brilliant ideas um, can be brought forward in that exchange and, and then really inform the work that, that happens going forward. All right. Well, thanks for having this conversation today. It's been good. Ah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Looking forward to more special education content coming your way. Thank you all for listening to another episode here on TuneIn YRDSB. Stay tuned for more episodes and for great conversations uh, happening soon. Thank you for joining us for TuneIn YRDSB. Please join us next time to continue the conversation.